Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we have an amazing guest today. We have Steve Lodeen. Steve, how are you? Doing great. Good to talk with you again, Brian. You know, Steve, I, I can't remember how many times we've done podcasts together. I was trying to think back this morning, but it, it's got to be at least three, four times, right, over the last couple of years? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you, you have, uh, you have a, a great background, sort of how you came up through cybersecurity and, and how your career has progressed and, and, and the things that you're doing now. I, I know you wear so many hats. I was wondering, could you take a few moments and just kind of share with our listeners sort of your journey and, and what it is you actually do today? Sure. Um, well, you can't really tell because this is radio, but I got a gray beard, so I've been around <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I started off uh, with an engineering degree, electrical, electronics, engineering, software engineering was my key. I worked for General Motors and developed concept car vehicle displays. So a head-up mm. display, um, something that made the elderly see better, you know, those types of concepts. Uh, while I was managing to do software, I decided that I liked working on the computers just as much. Ended up managing a global Unix environment for uh, some of the General Motors divisions to basically write software. Mm. Um, in that uh, pivot into, into system administration, I realized that uh, security was a big deal. Watching uh, the Morris worm and other things happen out there, I uh, focused on security and uh, got what was called a GM fellowship. I went back to school for a master's degree in computer science and they paid my uh, salary half and paid all my tuition. Excellent deal, uh, learned so much going back, uh, back to school, getting a master's degree. I went to Purdue University under Professor Gene Spafford, Spaff as he's known by everybody. And since then, since the mid 90s, I've been really focused on security. Um, I basically did some consulting at Ernst & Young the same time George Kurtz, who runs CrowdStrike, was there. Uh, lots of uh, incredible people working at Ernst & Young doing consulting. Uh, I then followed up by starting up the global IT security team for Roche Diagnostics in Europe. Lived in Europe for three years. Again, met some incredible security people in Europe um, that have handles that would be, you know, Names you would know off the top, like FX and um, Max and all of these guys that are still in the security field today. Mm. Uh, after doing that, I spent a little bit of time with a startup. Uh, we started a company here in Indianapolis for uh, four of us. We're founders. It's still running strong, doing a great uh, job. They're focusing on MDR and the uh, SOC data center side. Uh, but for the past 10 years, I've been at Sally May. I have been protecting millions of IDs of borrowers and co-borrowers from the hackers. And knock on wood, uh, we haven't had any breaches and we've had very few compromised accounts or IDs. So um, doing a great job there, really enjoying it. I've got a great mentor that's uh, keeping me involved in the community and um, 
Today, I'm, I'm running the cybersecurity operations team, you know, endpoint protection, network protection, secure web gateways, uh, threat and vulnerability management, and then I'm also running the IAM team, uh, centralized identity, uh, access certifications, all under strong um, regulatory management. Uh, our friends there are the FDIC. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you, you know, when I said at the beginning, you know, you, you do a lot of things or you, you wear so many hats and you have worn so many hats there, just that Sally May, which I think is, is just amazing. I mean, your, your roles and responsibilities, I, I don't think even how you explained it, people grasp how, how much you're actually responsible uh, for there, but it's pretty, pretty great. And I didn't know you uh, went all the way back to Morrisworm. I haven't actually heard that mentioned in a while. I think uh, a lot of our listeners that go way back, remember his, his dad worked for the NSA, right? Yeah, he and, did, uh, and a little was, slippage on coding there that caused uh, yeah. all, most of the internet at the time to go down. I mm. think it will infect maybe a dozen computers, wake up in the morning, oops, like every computer. And that was using mostly finger and R commands, I think, way back then. Yep. Uh, yeah. And the driver there for me was um, Spaff's response on what actually happened drove me to um, follow him even closer. He was only... Uh, I don't know, 40 minutes away from where I worked. So um, that, that was a key driver for me. And I ended up uh, learning so much under him. And um, I actually, you know, back in the day before CVEs were the, the vulnerability gnome day, I had a US CERT vulnerability, 96.02, that basically was my research on the random number generator in Kerberos. Um, mm -hmm. they had gone from Kerberos, uh, version four to version five, but they continued to use the version four random number generator that had about 20 bits of entropy. So it was real easy to, to break even back in those days with, uh, slow computers. Wow. Steve. So man, I mean, you covered so many things that you're focused on. It's like, if you, if you look at this new kind of area of security, we call XDR today, right? Which includes all these things and. A lot of the things you mentioned are kind of within the context of that, but and so I'd love to get into kind of all those various, you know, areas of security that you address. But what's your team look like? Are these are they distributed? I mean, how is your team built around so many areas of security? You mentioned endpoint, network, IAM, web stuff, email security. <clears throat> what does your team look like, and, and how do you build it that way? Well, Sally Mae is not as big a team as you might uh, imagine. Um, not as big a company, but I have a uh, cybersecurity team that does essentially tier two um, investigations from a, a managed outsourced tier one provider. And mm. um, that's kind of my blue team, red team. Um, also contains my purple team, and Brian will be really familiar with this. We started off with Veridin uh, when it was a startup company. We're continuing to use the Mandiant MSV product and um, using that as our purple team to validate that um, two things, that our security stack is working as intended and that the logs are showing up in our uh, cloud uh, SIM SOC tool as well. Um, yeah, that's just, it's, uh, I've got a team of probably eight people uh, on the cybersecurity side and I have a team of 12 people those are dedicated full-times on the IAM side. It's a large team, lots of regulatory 
risk, audit finding, compliance side of things to make sure that uh, levers are added correctly to the right groups with role-based access control and, uh, or sorry, joiners, and levers are exited from the system appropriately within 24 hours, 30 days, whatever that uh, regulatory compliance time frame is. So um, in addition to all of that, we've got managed outsourced uh, providers, and then um, we have uh, outsource developers uh, for some of the tools on the IAM side. So a lot of outsourcing mixed in there as well. Mm. Now, Steve, you were one of the first people and first organizations that I don't want to say embrace the cloud because a lot of people have and continue to embrace the cloud. But uh, Sally May has gone all in. I mean, you you are, I don't know what percentage of your, your business is cloud-based now, but uh, I know it's pretty large. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that journey and, and sort of what you went through there. Sure. Uh, Sally May split the company into Sally May and Navient about eight, nine years ago. And in that process, we went from a focused internal, everything has to be on-prem, don't trust anybody else type of company to a cloud-friendly type of company. We started off with Office 365, Workday, ServiceNow applications in the cloud and had a managed data center. After our managed data center contract ran out um, in five years, we took the opportunity to spend a couple of years in that five-year process explaining to our regulators that we knew what we were doing and could move our data center to the cloud, so the, the cloud service providers. We spent a lot of time convincing them that we knew what we were doing, put a lot of tools on top, a lot of visibility, a lot of transparency built in on top of that. Uh, we convinced them, and in 2018, at the end of 2018, we moved our entire data center assets into Amazon. Uh, Amazon reInvent presentations, um, uh, uh, FSISAC presentations, all describing that as public information. But today, uh, after four years, we've spent, we did that lift and shift where you take your virtual images in the data center and move those virtual images into Amazon, peeling off stuff, putting stuff on. Um, but it was basically a lift and shift of those virtual images. It was that uh, easy, right? Just uh, control C, <laughs> control V, that's it. <laughs> Um, it was a year-long process with uh, a third party assisting us, and basically all the work happened in a month or two to move all of those assets. But it was a lot of preparation to get there. Um, since then, we've spent a lot of time uh, focusing on um, workload microservicing, um, managed workloads in Amazon. We've gone from 20 Amazon accounts when we did the lift and shift to well over 200 now. Each mm -hmm. workload has a, um, a strongly organized um, config infrastructure as code-based um, stack that has dev test and prod for each of those microservices um, and a ton of automation in there. And again, um, security on top of that to make sure that um, developers aren't doing crazy or stupid stuff. And how did, how did, so what a journey. I mean, that's, it's amazing. And, and for our listeners, like, how did your security approach change when you did that? I mean, what would be, what was, what are the biggest things that just absolutely changed for you and your team when you moved to the cloud like that? Well, we didn't want to go backwards in our security maturity. Um, and that meant that for us, we couldn't just take Amazon's native services 
um, by default. We had to still put mm. stuff on top, security mm-hmm. solutions on top. Yep. So firewalls, web application firewalls. Um, we still, uh, from our environment, we run about 40% of our end user systems are laptops. The other 60% are virtual desktop interfaces, VDIs, virtual desktop infrastructure that run in Amazon. Um, so we still need stuff on top of that. Endpoint protection, forensic tools, uh, secure web gateways on uh, traffic outbound, along with strong network segmentation. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, back back in the day, if a laptop gets infected, it connects outbound on whatever uh, C2 protocol is out there. And uh, sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. For us, uh, you know, we've got strong segmentation. The only outbound traffic for endpoints is 80 and 443 out through a secure web gateway. That helps us uh, eliminate a lot of that risk. And if you think about the the two major exploit points for uh, companies today, it's emails and web traffic. So if you do a strong uh, prevention of phishing and malware getting in your emails, and then as a secondary, if you make sure that the when they click on something, they can't get there because it's a bad site, um, you eliminate a ton of risk into your endpoints. And we spend a lot of time putting tools, keeping the same tools on top of Amazon infrastructure for our servers and our um, VDI environment. So, Steve, based on your journey uh, all, all these years in security, you've seen threats come and go, trends, priorities. Uh, what do you see today as maybe some of the biggest cybersecurity threats? And what do you see as some of the trends that people like yourself are taking to address those? So I think, and you'll see this in the news quite frequently, but I think one of the biggest um, changes over the past few years has been this focus on nation state attacks mm-hmm. and extortion or otherwise known as ransomware and even this DDoS for hire. It's affecting um, everybody down to the little business. You used to be able to say, I'm a small business. I I don't have any uh, data. Nobody's going to attack me. Well, that turned into, um, you have money, so I'm going to attack you anyway and either DDoS you or uh, ransomware you, freeze up all your systems or extort you on sharing your data. Um, That in combination with this whole nation state attack environment, I think that really hit hard with uh, Petya, not Petya and has since um, you know, moved into focus for everybody. Every board is asking the question, who's gonna hit us next and how are we prepared? So that's what, one of the, the major differences in the uh, cybersecurity landscape that we've seen over the past few years. And then Steve, I mean, you have with, from a Sally Mae perspective, obviously, and you mentioned it, right? There's a lot of regulatory requirements that you have to pay very close attention to given the structure of your organization. How does how does the regulatory environment kind of impact the way you look at security, select security, focus on security, strategize around it? Does it affect it, say, from just a pure company that's a pure kind of public sector, doesn't have as much kind of regulatory areas? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And um, so the regulators are uh, focused on you know, what's your size, what's your impact, what's your involvement in the financial services industry. Mm-hmm. They have what's called the um, FFIEC cybersecurity assessment tool, the CAT tool. And it assesses based on 
you know, we're a small bank, so we're not Citi, uh, JP Morgan, Visa. We don't have the same attack surface that they do. So we're less risky. Um, we have fewer internet connections. We don't have uh, branch, uh, branch offices and, and um, ATMs and, you know, that type of attack. So smaller, lower risk. But then we take a look at what are the tools we need to have in place across the entire uh, security spectrum from third-party vendor management, threat intelligence, uh, server and endpoint um, uh, vulnerability and patch remediation. They assess you based on that in a um, traditional CMM zero to five type of rating um, from beginner to advanced uh, to see how you're doing in your tools. And we, we do these types of assessments. Uh, the Cybersecurity CAD is one of them. The other one we use is the uh, Cyber Risk Institute's profile. Again, focused on the financial services industry in combination with NIST to be able to assess where we are, what gaps we have, and what we believe we need to do to address any potential residual risk in that environment. So Steve, let's let's pivot a little bit to XIoT because about a year ago, I called you up and I'm like, Steve, what do you think about XIoT, this whole world of IoT and OT and network devices, all these embedded firmware things that are out there? And uh, I wanted to get your take on it and uh, just kind of walk through, you know, the the total addressable market and the risk posture, et cetera. But, you know, why do you think that historically XIOT has been such a complicated issue for organizations to try to address, especially when they find out, yikes, I've got like 50,000 of these things. I don't have like 500 of them. <laughs> why has it been so complicated? Well, first of all, you you hit the key point. In every security surface management, you have to have a good understanding of what your inventory is. And mm -hmm. IoT devices is one of those hardly managed, hardly inventoried scenarios. You don't know what you have until mm -hmm. you figure that out with some tools and technology. It's, it's a difficult situation. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, in the, let's say in the, early to mid 90s when vulnerability scanners first came out. The first one that came out was Satan, if you yep. remember. Mm -hmm. Dan Farmer's Dan uh, Farmer security, ad yep. security administrator tool for analyzing network. Is that is that what it was? Yes. Or you could change it to Santa if you didn't like Satan. As <laughs> you a, could run the Perl script to Santa Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I was a beta tester in that. In a manufacturing environment with a ton of, at the time, wasn't called IoT, but effectively was. I ran Satan against, um, you know, global network uh, manufacturing devices that run uh, uh, production lines to put together instrument displays or radios. And I managed to take them down the first time I ran Satan. Um, those IoT devices didn't know how to respond to an attack tool or a vulnerability uh, detection tool. So um, I'm sure that devices... made you extremely popular with the guys in manufacturing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that didn't, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I took down lots of manufacturing systems running Satan on a global network like that. But uh, inventory is the first thing, understanding that. Um, I think this, uh, this new XIoT um, complication comes from a couple of different things. One, they're small resources, so they're not always configured to have the entire security stack in place. Mm -hmm. Two, there's definitely a legacy mentality. Put it in there once, 
15 years ago, it still seems to work. Don't touch it. Don't upgrade it. Don't patch it. Don't do anything. Don't touch it. It still works. Uh, so there's that legacy mentality. Uh, the other thing is a lot of businesses that are running those types of devices have a no one would attack me um, scenario. They think that I'm a small small uh, company. I have a small network imprint. Nobody's going to want to attack me. Why would they do that? Um, forgetting the fact that Mirai Botnet exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this whole concept of, well, we air gap that network, so there shouldn't be any problem. But air gaps have uh, largely disappeared over the years. So I think uh, that's really how it's so complicated is to start off with the, the basics there. So, Steve, given that, and you think in terms of the overall attack surface, we just talked about some of these. It's hard to get visibility. Some of the traditional tools don't really work too well. You mentioned vulnerability management, and the host of traditional legacy approaches don't work terribly well with these devices. Have you done anything different to get visibility? And, and, and furthermore, how do you think of your attack surface now relative to these devices? Well, um, there's two ways to look at attack surface. One is internal and the other is external. Um, hopefully, as a company, you've got that uh, external attack surface um, tools in place. And hopefully, you've got network segmentation in place that doesn't expose any of those uh, IoT, XIoT devices to uh, the internet or to the attacker side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from, from our perspective, we have spent a lot of time doing internal network segmentation um, to limit the scope and capability to talk between different um, planes of um, tools that we have in in place. Um, So for us, you know, we've got a small limited number of these uh, IoT devices and we're trying to do two things on those to limit the uh, attack surface. One is to um, have good uh, security configuration built in. That's a challenge mm-hmm. in the IoT devices. They're not always built um, to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is basically to limit through segmentation accessibility. And again, that's a challenge um, in order to have the devices work as you, as you intend them to be working. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely it's, it's not a solved easy, go follow a playbook uh, scenario. Yeah, Steve, we've we've been doing this long enough where we see these vulnerabilities pop up and trends related to those. And it seems like the nation states and the cyber criminals all kind of get fixated on it and just, you know, wreak as much havoc as they can, make as much money as they can, cause as much destruction as possible for as long as possible. Uh, I'm wondering, because we're seeing this trend now of pivot attacks where attackers are getting in through IT, usually through like a phishing attack. Um, It could be through email, messaging, social media, what have you, but they infect a laptop that's internal to the organization. From there, they start to pivot and look for XIoT devices. That could be a a printer, a security camera, an OT device. It could be a load balancer or a switch even. And and they, they move over there so they can maintain persistence, evade detection. Most of them are Linux or Android, VxWorks, BSD, things like that. So they're regular operating systems with you know, the same ports, protocols, capabilities as a Linux server would. 
And then they use that again to maintain persistence and evade detection and attack IT assets and then to exfiltrate that data out. Now, it sounds like you've done a lot of work in, you know, finding those devices and segmenting the network and and trying to, you know, harden those devices to follow, you know, good configuration approaches. Uh, I think you're way ahead of most organizations when it comes to actually trying to secure XIoT. But my question is this, given that no one's really paying attention to these devices at scale. And no one's, most organizations don't know what they have. They have default passwords, insecure uh, firmware. They're loaded with vulnerabilities and clear text protocols and this and that. Is this going to be the new, new? Get in through IT, pivot to XIoT, wreak havoc for years, potentially, you know, stealing sensitive data, ransomware attacks, things like you mentioned before, uh, because people just aren't ready for this? Is, is, is this the new, new? Yeah, I definitely think it's the new, new. Um, uh, most companies are spending a lot of time securing their endpoints and securing their servers, and they haven't gotten into the physical world or into the um, the data center infrastructure world. So they're spending a lot of time just focused on the external presence, the external devices, and missing the core pieces to their environment. If they don't have segmentation already built in, if they don't have strong configuration management on devices, if it's a plug and play, uh, they're definitely ripe for attack. And have you seen, again, we talked about, I mean, you you focus on nation states, you talked about that, it's something you pay a lot of attention to. You mentioned um, the Mirai botnet. Uh, We have a tool called Fronton that the Russian FSB developed that's now out kind of there in the wild. do do the you know and Brian mentioned a little bit about the nation states focusing on that are, are you seeing that are you keeping an eye on you know nation states now focusing on these type of devices in your environment is that anything you've seen or are you focusing on that well um we're lucky that we don't have a ton of internal devices that would fall into that category we mm-hmm. don't have atms we don't have um you know, a huge physical presence that uh, that might be in that in their in their sight line. Um, so for us, it's really making sure that we're doing best practices in managing those types of devices, mm-hmm. uh, but not a huge attack surface hitting us from the outside that uh, that concerns us uh, to make huge changes in our environment. Yeah, I think that's what's unique about. Uh- Sally Mae, Steve, I mean, it's financial services, but it's not a bank. You don't walk down to the local, like you said, the local Sally Mae ATM machine or go into the, a branch, uh, mm-hmm. at least not yet. I don't know. I don't know what your plans are for the future. I'm not trying to make your roadmap. Uh, but yeah, you are, you are a little bit more ethereal, I think, than, <laughs> than the mm-hmm. local bank. Um, what, I, what I will wonder, though, because I, I know you do, you, know, you do have this mix of systems and things like that. Uh, what kind of stories from the trenches maybe can you share? Any interesting uh, war stories or, or use cases as of late? Ooh, good question. Um, you know, for us, it's, uh, you know, regulatory compliance. That's a key thing for us. Um, we, we're friends with uh, the financial services um, ISAC environment. We participate strongly in um, understanding the attacks, uh, providing that information to our colleagues. Uh, we share a ton with the, uh, the rest of the financial services in, um, in anticipation of helping them 
get ahead, you know, if we consider ourselves maybe a little more visionary, a little more ahead, using tools to identify uh, attacks like that, um, we're trying to share that information and make sure that the overall environment improves. Uh, is it 100%? No, that would be um, facetious to, to assume that. Um, but we like to think that we're a little advanced in identifying attacks, preventing attacks, and um, preventing them from pivoting into our environment, especially on the, um, the managed services side and also on the managed device side. Uh, we try to make sure that our devices are configured appropriately using best practices. If, if a traditional um, Center for Internet Security uh, uh, configuration guide doesn't exist, um, we'll still work to identify attack scenarios and uh, improve those. Uh, so across the entire environment, we're trying to make sure that attackers have a, a reduced surface and that our configurations are set up uh, appropriately. And so, you know, that includes um, having a license plate reader in the environment to, to check to make sure that uh, cars coming in are approved, um, but making sure that that device isn't um, accessible from the internet and able to be hacked. You know, those are the types of uh, exposures that we're trying to prevent on the physical and um, IoT side as well. Steve, it sounds like you're sharing this information with other financial institutions. So there's a, sounds like there's a discourse and you're talking to other kind of leading financial institutions. And is that safe to say? And, and you're exchanging information and recommendations. Is, is that happening? It sounds like that's happening. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, we're one of the more um, prominent contributors to identifying attacks and sharing that knowledge uh, to make the whole uh, industry move upwards in uh, their protection mechanisms. Um, happy to do that. Uh, you know, the more that we can identify, uh, document, and share, the less attacks that are hitting our colleagues and our peers in the industry. Great. Well, Steve. This has been really wonderful, um, especially strolling down memory lane a little bit there with the Morris Worm and Spaff and, and Satan and all of that. Uh, but for some closing thoughts, I wonder if you have any advice that you can give our listeners uh, that are working in, in cybersecurity. Uh, you have uh, just as much breadth and depth of anybody that I've ever met in the industry. You, you go way back and you've, you've kind of seen it all. So for those listening in, you know, what, what can you leave them with? Well, I think uh, one thing is um, many companies still have a ton of legacy debt. They're still in their own data center with systems that haven't been patched, um, aren't appropriately configured. I think that um, the shift to the cloud accelerates uh, removing all of that legacy security debt. I advocate that. Um, obviously, don't do it uh, beyond what your company is capable of doing. But for us, um, basically, that shift to the cloud continued to provide security opportunities and improvements in our overall environment. Um, we don't have legacy systems, legacy operating systems um, exposed to uh, potential attackers. Um, again, even though it may seem like it's real easy to put up a firewall and call it secure, um, that's not an... Uh, an easy thing to do and protect your overall environment, but having a good understanding 
of what's out there, where it is, how it's configured, um, regardless of whether it's a Windows Server or a um, door opening um, mechanism that connects to the network, uh, all of those devices are at risk if they're attached to a network and um, mm -hmm. even at risk if they're theoretically air-gapped. So um, making sure that uh, you have your tools and technology in place to eliminate or reduce risk appropriately is, is always a, a strong way to move. You know, that was really interesting, Steve. Um, I'd like to take it one more step. And if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the SysOkev. Uh, Maybe you could uh, tell us what's going on there with, with all those vulnerabilities. So that SysOkev, uh, Known Exploitable Vulnerabilities, is a tool that we've been using to track the vulnerabilities that are most possible to affect us. And um, one of the interesting things that I've noticed on the SysOkev is that they're spending a lot of time focusing on exploitable vulnerabilities added in OT systems. Um, if you take a look at some of the, the data coming out from the vulnerability providers, they're also focusing on Emerson, Siemens, Schneider, these OT devices that uh, many times get installed and never managed and never patched and never updated. So um, Sysikev is really starting to focus on that. Um, if you have those devices, it's a great way to figure out uh, what the exposure is and what the vulnerabilities are. Um, but sometimes it does hard things for non-IT people, and that's to update their systems to the latest operating system or version from the vendor. That's tough for a lot of these people to take systems down, patch them, and get them back up to date. But the Sysikev has expanded beyond just Windows and Linux into these IoT type devices. Well, that's uh, very, very precious advice. I, I'm sure our listeners will, will greatly appreciate that. So thank you so much. And, and again, thanks, Brian, our host. And uh, thanks to our very special guest today, Steve Lodine. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. It's great talking with you guys again. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. And we'll see you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast.